0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the terrible tragedy in Nova Scotia. We also seem to be flattening the curve, the latest, and what the models are saying. And the House of Commons proved today they can get back together and sit. So why not every day, whether it's in person or virtually? That's what the rest of the country is doing why not our politicians it's all coming up on the scott thompson show podcast today on the scott thompson show on 900 chml yesterday 17 people including an rcmp officer and the suspect were killed in a shooting that has been called one of the deadliest in our country's history to talk more about all of this ross lord is with us atlantic correspondent for global news and is with us now ross thank you so much for the time and my condolences to everybody uh in your neck of the woods. It must just be devastating there today.
1: It is. I appreciate those kind words and you know there are a lot of condolences and a lot of words of support that are being passed between people here. Um, in one sense this incredible rampage, horrifying, uh was along a stretch of tiny villages about an hour, hour and a half north of Halifax. So You know, not a a huge part of the province, but everyone feels it, right? I think every Canadian feels it um, who cares about uh, each other. We just heard from the Prime Minister that the uh, shooting spree has now claimed 18 lives. um, And the RCMP are going to update us in less than an hour. But, you know, every indication we have is that they don't know if that's a definitive total yet. So we will undoubtedly learn more soon, but, you know, from something that some of us heard might be a couple of people dead, and then it was 10, more than 10, Mm -hmm. and it's just been getting higher and higher, and, uh, you know, you don't like to to reach for those those sort of trite, sensational words, but it really is, it feels like a nightmare of sorts. It just keeps getting worse.
0: So what do we actually know? Because as you said, this story seems to be quite fluid at this time, and, and unfortunately there may uh, be other victims here. What do we know uh, about what happened and what transpired?
1: Well, we know that the gunmen um, started a series of fires on a beach in a tiny place called Portapique, um, and that there was an exchange of gunfire at the beach. Witnesses have told us there was an incredible... Array of police and ambulances, but no fire trucks, which is what first made them wonder what was happening. Some of them tried to get closer and were told very intensely by RCMP to get back to where they were uh, staying. And that there were public uh, announcements issued by the Mounties for people to stay in their houses and lock their doors. Um, and it turns out that what happened is this guy, uh, Wartman, Uh, had a mocked-up RCMP cruiser and at least a partial RCMP uniform and was, as far as we know, going around throughout the night killing people. And this all came to a head uh, when he was driving southbound on Highway 102 between Truro and Halifax, and um, he finally became embroiled in a confrontation with police at a at a gas station, and he was shot and killed.
0: Oh my! What uh, what do we know about the victims? D- did uh, did the shooter know the victims? We understand one was uh, neighbor na- uh, in one situation. It was neighbors. Uh, what do we know about the victims and their relationship to the shooter?
1: Yeah, neighbors for sure. We we have um, a long list of of names. The only names that have been released publicly are uh, a teacher, Lisa McCulley, uh, and a 23-year veteran of the RCMP, Constable Heidi Stevenson, married mother of two, Um, many, many others. And as far as we know, not a final or complete list. Um, You know, I don't want to say too much about it because a lot of these these, these names and this information has not been confirmed, or at least we're not in a condition, uh, you know, in, in, in a situation where we can reveal too much about them, but, um, you know, a, a wide variety of people along this stretch of tiny villages
0: um and obviously in that part of the world a lot of people know each other and such and and knew of the shooter and and had no reason to suspect any of this from what i understand um uh we don't know anything as far as a motive or any of that at this at this point do we
1: no we don't and that's a big question is is what drives this guy so this guy is a um, a denturist, right? So he makes false teeth, and he had a couple of clinics, one in Halifax and one on the other side of the harbor in Dartmouth. Um, we spoke with a landlord of a strip mall where one of those clinics was who said he paid his rent on time for more than 20 years. He did see him recently driving what appeared to be an old police car, no decals but reflective tape that you could see, see was still visible, Um which matches is what the Maudis told us, right? That the gunman used a mock-up version of an RCMP vehicle and at least a partial uniform. Um, in terms of what motivated him, we don't know. We have, we have some new information that we're literally learning, uh, by the minute or, or at least by the hour here. Um, you know, he had divorce proceedings in 2001. He, um, had a minor assault conviction in 2002. There was, uh, small claims case uh, that I'm still learning details about. There was a speeding ticket pending in Truro. You know, none of these would, would on, on, their, on the face of it, give you a big clue about what was to come. There was also a 2015 court application by a relative um, uh, disputing um, ownership and, and, and financial details surrounding the property on that beach where all of this started. And the uh, Nova Scotia Supreme Court at that time ruled that um, the relative got to keep all proceeds of the sale of the property. And, you know, wh- while they were arguing and filing affidavits, there were allegations that, you know, you owe me money and, um, well, no, I'm, I'm the actual owner of this, although we're listed as joint tenants, all this kind of thing. So there, there, was, there was some family discord for sure in terms of him and his relatives. And there were some other brushes with the law, if I can call it that. And there was a divorce in 2001. Um, but, you know, what what would touch this off or cause someone to hatch this kind of clearly premeditated um, scheme, rampage? The, the RCMP themselves, you know, uh, Mercedes Stevenson in Ottawa interviewed the RCMP commissioner, Brenda Lucky, and she said, we don't know. We're still trying to find out exactly what was driving this guy.
0: Mm. And, Ross, moving forward, uh, you mentioned a press conference. Uh, what do we hope to find out uh, when all of that happens? Can you give us some details there?
1: I think we'll look for sure to find out if that rising number of deaths uh, is is the same as it was even an hour or two ago or whether there's been a change in that. Um And we'll look to find out more about the results of the RCMP retracing this gunman's steps and what, if any, insight they can give us into what drove this guy.
0: All right, Ross Lord has been with us, Atlantic correspondent for Global News. Ross, in in what has already been an incredible several weeks uh, now, uh, this news, uh, it's it's amazing how Canadians are coming together and uh, offering their condolences to those uh, in your part of the world. Again, our condolences and our thoughts and prayers with everybody out there, Ross. Good luck as you get through the day.
1: Thank you, and stay healthy and stay safe.
0: You too. All right, we're continuing to talk about this tragedy in in, uh, Nova Scotia, uh, 18 dead, including uh, the shooter. Let's bring in Phil uh, Phil Gursky, president and CEO of Borealis Threat uh, Threat and Risk Consulting, and is with us now. Phil, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Boy, what a bizarre time to have something like this happen uh, during a, uh, a COVID-19 pandemic where, where everybody's attention is just so focused on on staying isolated and staying safe. What are your thoughts as you, and again, very limited information here, but what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I, 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 you're right, Scott. I think really we have to be really careful at this point because there's so much we don't know. But you, you raised a really interesting point that I want to pick up on. You know, yeah, we're, it's all COVID all the time. You can't log on. You can't turn on the TV. You can't turn on the radio without hearing about COVID. So this is a bit of a you know, that field thing. And one thing that a lot of people have been saying, and I've kind of pushed back on, saying that we would see a spike in violence, and more specifically a spike in terrorism. You, you and I talk about terrorism a lot on this show uh, because of COVID. And there's no indication, at least so far, that what happened in Nova Scotia is tied to COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are, there are some indications that the, the man, uh, he's a dentist, his business had been under some pressure because of isolation. It wasn't an essential service. And so some people are making that link already, I don't want to go there just yet because there's just far too much that we don't know about his motive. If he had one, why he chose the victims he did and why he chose the time he did. So, you know what, Scott, I I'm just waiting to hear more information and hopefully we'll find out more from the RCMP, but there's also um, a distinct possibility here is that we will never know why he did mm-hmm. what he did. And I, and the, the, the case I'll cite for you is that the Las Vegas shooter a couple of years ago, remember that guy yeah. that was in the hotel? Yeah. Um, he, he killed himself and we never found out why he did what he did. So, mm. We want to know why? We may never find out, unfortunately.
0: Uh, and especially when you're hearing things like him impersonating an RCMP officer, you think in the planning that must have gone invol- that must have been involved in this, it, 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 it sounds like this might have been developing long before COVID-19.
2: Yeah, I, I like the way you put that. And again, I'll do, do another I'll analogies. The analogy I'll draw here as well is, you remember Anders Breivik in Norway a couple of years ago who killed all those people, all those young people? He dressed in uniform, a uniform he made up himself. And when he was walking through the island with a gun, some of the young people thought he was there to help. And therefore, he killed the people that, that were, you know, thought, saw him as an authority. There's already reports that a couple was killed when he pulled him over in his fake RCMP card. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. This, this shows some kind of planning uh, as to why. Uh, we, it remains to be seen. But, yeah, I think this definitely was, was some way, some year maybe not years, but definitely some weeks or months in the making. And as you said, could very well predate the COVID outbreak.
0: You know, you bring up a valid point too, uh, Phil, in the sense that we haven't talked about terrorism. We haven't talked about any of that stuff in the last couple months.
2: Which is interesting because, as I said, there's some people that I have seen saying we're going to see a spike in it, and and it's the exact opposite, which is really fascinating. So, you know, we're still seeing terrorism in Afghanistan. There's an attack in northern Afghanistan, killed 19 soldiers on Sunday. We're still seeing attacks in Somalia. We're still seeing attacks in West Africa. We're not seeing attacks in the West. There's been one attack in the West that I'm aware of, and it was about a few weeks ago in southern France, where a Sudanese immigrant killed two people. But there's no wave of terrorism because of the coronavirus, which is really interesting. One would have thought maybe the bad guys thought we're kind of off our game. You know, yeah. they're seeing full staff, pieces of stuff. Create anarchy. Staff. Yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah. Um,
2: the only thing that seems to be on the rise, and, and I'd be very, very cautious here, is some of the right wing preppers. Are, are talking a lot about oh this covid is the end of time and it's the deep state kind of thing yeah but even there a lot of talk and not a lot of action so far so thank god for that
0: phil gursky has been with us president and ceo of borealis threat, uh, threat and risk consulting phil thank you so much for the time in this very bizarre times that we're living through uh you be safe take care
2: you too scott thanks for calling
0: you're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is some good news. Uh, the Ontario Secondary Teachers Federation and the Ontario government have reached a tentative, uh, a tentative deal, which is great. And this, uh details are few and far between at this point because it still hasn't gone to the membership yet, uh, yet. That will happen. Let's bring in Harvey Bischoff, president of the Ontario Secondary Teachers Federation. Harvey, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We hope you're doing well during this time.
4: I'm doing okay, yeah, thank you.
0: Uh, so, obviously, uh, Harvey, this on the burner prior to COVID-19, uh, what can you tell us about this deal? Obviously, uh, it still has to go to membership and stuff, so I, I understand there's only so much you can say about it. But what are your thoughts to, to have got to where you have today?
4: Yeah, I mean, that's right. I won't talk about uh, details um, because uh, it, it won't go to the membership uh, until a good week from now. Uh, in fact, there's a process we need to go through where we bring it to presidents and chief negotiators um, who vote to determine whether or not it gets forward to forwarded to the membership. Um, but, uh, it, you know, in the meantime, uh, we've reached a deal that, as I said in my statement, uh, doesn't address all of my members' concerns. Um, but we're in a different circumstance right now. We'd be tone deaf not to recognize that. And it's appropriate to bring this forward to the membership
0: um you said you didn't get everything you wanted and again we understand that it still has to go to the membership before it hits our ears um i understand that uh that being said uh you talked about this being a different a different circumstance how has covid19 changed all this discussion well look we we
4: recognize there's people all over, but including in Ontario, who are suffering. People have been sick. They've lost loved ones. They're suffering from uh, difficult economic circumstances. And we'd have to be remarkably tone deaf not to be familiar with that. So at this time, you know, what students need is a sense of stability uh, as much as we can possibly give to them. And certainly that had an impact on the bargaining environment
0: um obviously one of the sticking points way back when as well as class size was e-learning and such we've now seen uh students moving to remote learning and and this whole different paradigm that uh i guess technology was there for but we're certainly uh you know it was certainly all new to us how has this situation advanced that discussion is there some unity there is is there some way we can learn from this and move forward you know, I think it's really
4: important to actually separate what's happening right now from any future plans for, for e-learning. What we're doing right now is, you know, what I would call crisis pedagogy. We're doing our very best and my members absolutely are committed to uh, doing everything they can for students in this time. But it's, you know, it's it's hit and miss in terms of the students that you reach and how well you reach them. It it doesn't provide anything like a model for how we should go forward. Yeah, um, this is just a it's a crisis mitigation effort. Um, and in fact, what one of the things it does do it highlights the inequities amongst students in terms of their access to uh, or their capacity to engage with e-learning. And and I mm-hmm. think there's a lesson there that should be well learned.
0: Uh, does this help create a new model moving
4: forward? Well, I absolutely don't believe it does. And I would, uh, you know, I would implore the minister not to be talking about this as a transformation in the uh, public education system. This is just a, a mitigation effort, and it misses many students who, for a variety of reasons, just don't have the capacity to engage with, uh, th- with this kind of learning. Um, and so, you know, trying to address those inequities, is going to be critical going forward
0: is there a way to address those inequities if, if uh, you know again i don't know what the numbers are you could probably help me there but say 10 percent of the students don't have access to this stuff even you know 20 percent two and ten how do we make it so the other 80 percent can benefit and we bring the other 20 percent that don't have the technology along is it easier to bring them along than it is not to give it to the other 80 percent Oh, look, and that's
4: that's why that's why my members are doing their best uh, to to uh, try to present some sort of continuity of learning as as best they possibly can. And there's been some efforts made to provide uh, students with uh, hardware, with access to Internet and so forth. And, you know, those are absolutely worth worthwhile trying. Um, It just it doesn't eliminate the fact that, you know, it's it's not just that kind of thing that, Interferes with students capacity to participate in this kind of distance learning. There are so many things that need to be taken into account. Uh, Kids situations at home, um, you know, Mm. know, some of them, some of them are taking care of younger siblings while uh, a parent is working from home. Um, You know, I mean even in my household uh trying to find enough bandwidth and you know we're, we're yeah. pretty fortunate people but uh trying to find enough bandwidth to to be online and you yeah. know we've got we've got two adults working from home and uh, children trying to learn from home it's a tough situation
0: yeah no i hear you there uh on that note uh your thoughts on the end of the school year do you think kids are going to go back or do you think we're doing this to the end
4: yeah, I don't want to speculate on that at all. Just, be, I mean, I have absolutely no expertise in that area. Um, you know, I mean... What
0: are your thoughts if we do have to take this to the end of the year?
4: That we will, for the for the period of closure, and if that lasts for the entire year, we'll continue to do our best to keep kids uh, learning as much as we can. But I still I firmly believe we need to be sending a message very clearly that there will be uh, a lot of effort going into mitigating um, the gaps that arise during this time for students for next year. I've, I've actually, I've kind of pleaded with the minister to make that message clear that whatever happens during this period of closure, when you get back to a face-to-face classroom, we'll recognize that different kids will have had different capacities to engage and we will do everything we can to catch them up. Because I, I think that message is really important for for students and for parents to know that, um, when the time comes that we have them back face-to-face, we recognize that there will have been, have been gaps that arise, and we want to, uh, to address those.
0: Harvey Bischoff has been with us, president of the Ontario Secondary, uh, Secondary School Teachers Federation. The OSSTF and the Ontario government have reached a tentative deal. And it looks like, well, when will we know any more information on this, Harvey? Any idea?
4: So we'll be presenting it to our presidents and chief negotiators on uh, Monday and Tuesday of next week. Um, the first, uh, so we, we have two different groups. We have the, our teacher group and our education worker group. Um, those groups will vote on whether or not to forward the tentative agreements to the membership. And uh, assuming they do that, then um, then you know the, the information will go out to my members in terms of the details of the tentative agreements.
0: Harvey Bischoff has been with us, president of the OSSTF. Harvey, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well moving forward. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. You know, it's amazing. It seems, you know, we hear so much about technology, and many times people say uh, technology far outpaces society, and then eventually we catch up. I guess this is another one of those situations where society is catching up to the technology. How do we use robots here? How are they of, of, of value here?
3: So you can imagine that you know there's hundreds and or even thousands of samples that are coming every every day into the, you know the, the clinical laboratory here, and um, they need to be tested and that involves taking a sample from those tubes and putting it through a process that you know, gives us, um, you know, sample at the end that we can go on and, you know, set up these reactions to detect it. And with that, you you can imagine there's at a certain point, we can't just we can't keep up with it. Um, These robots are essentially doing the exact same things that, you know, people would be doing, but in an automated system that, you know, is, you know, program to do a certain thing over and over and over and over again, and be able to keep up with the large numbers of samples that are being, you know, coming into the labs.
0: So what would this look like? I mean, you know, I'm just imagining a laboratory filled with robots. I mean, how, uh, obviously, this is all part of the process, like it is through, you know, in lots of industry, I guess, throughout society. But what would this physically look like?
3: Yeah, so um in something like, you know, this scenario, the, the the samples that are coming into the laboratory are are still infectious and have a chance to uh could actually uh in, infect people if they, if they're not contained properly. So the, the process that uh we've helped uh the the clinical laboratory here implement involves kind of a a two-stage setup where the uh samples come in uh, and then they go into a, a biosafety cabinet where we can you know um, safely handle these samples and then there's an instrument in there that will um, go to each of the tubes and take a sample from each of those and inactivate it for us so that does a lot of the, like the upfront processing of it and this is a you know a small um, six foot uh, biosafety hood and it's a smaller little robot that's in there that's processing them and then there's outside side once the sample is inactivated and safe to use there's a, another instrument that's probably the size of a, a pretty reasonable uh you know filing cabinet um on the bench um that will then take that and then process the the rest of the sample and it will be able to do it while well, it's doing about 96 samples in about uh 90 minutes right now
0: so is this um just a more efficient way of doing it from a safety and infection standpoint or is this more accurate and faster is it is it more a safety issue first
3: um it's uh it's a bit of both um and you know the the at a certain point like i say there there's so many samples that people can't keep up with it um and so it's a way to uh, address the problem to be able to do it efficiently and safely. And that's kind of the way that the uh, why we've been working from the research point of view uh, with the uh, clinical laboratory to um, help them implement these things so that they can keep up with the demands that they have for all the testing that they need to, to do.
0: I'm sure, uh, in the circles that you travel, this is the way things are done, but man, this is just incredible to, to think we have come this far. Do you ever just stand back and, and, and just shake your head at at what we can do now?
3: Um, it's, it's kind of incredible, uh, how, uh, much we can do with, uh, kind of, uh, automation and stuff. And it's going to be really fascinating over the uh, next uh, few months and even years to uh, look at how the role of um uh automation and diagnostics in you know clinical laboratories and also outside of them in the uh point of care and at the bedside how all this is all going to play together and how we're gonna you know hopefully be able to not only just address this problem but be ready for any potential you know future pandemics that uh, could arise.
0: How much has COVID-19 sped up a lot of this research?
3: a lot. Um, it, it, it's one of the things in the research world um, that we, uh, I, we try to strive for is um, doing translational research. So, you know, looking at a clinical problem, bringing it back to the, the research lab, coming up with a solution, and then translating it back to have that uh, clinical, you know, impact. And I think this has been kind of the epitome of you know, translational research, uh, working in the, the research lab, seeing that we need to help increase the, the scale of testing that's going on, and then working with the clinical lab to implement it. And that, you know, uh, closed loop that we have here um, is something that I think going forward is going to be exceedingly important, and we started to help other laboratories, you know, across Canada um, uh, implement the things that we've been working on in our laboratory.
0: Dr. David Bueller has been with us. Research Institute of St. Joe's Hamilton scientists. Uh, scientists at St. Joseph's Healthcare are leading the race to scale up testing of COVID-19 using robots. David, thanks so much for the uh, for the time and explanation. Much appreciated. Good luck and be well.
3: No problem. Have a great day.
0: You too. Models out of the Ontario government say we're flattening the curve. We'll get a transa- uh, translation when we return. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Paul Johnson, director of our emergency operations center with the city of Hamilton and is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
5: Hey, great to be with you this afternoon.
0: Uh, obviously, at the Emergency Operations Center, everybody's gathered around trying to figure what we're doing and how to get in and out of this uh, in the most efficient means and, and safest way. Where are we this weekend? Uh, we're starting to hear some positive news about flattening of curbs. Are we even there yet, Paul? Are we close?
5: So I, I think uh, we are, and, and even more so in Hamilton, where we have fared... Uh, remarkably well and i think that that uh, i mean we won't know all the reasons for that but i do know that one of the reasons is uh, you know the work that we've put into it as a community and that's every single person for the people that are taking social distancing and staying at home very seriously uh, obviously to those who are on the front lines delivering uh, healthcare services and you know there's these there's these things you look at it's a Here's why it's working well in Hamilton and there's been a number of outbreaks in care facilities that have been limited to one person. And that means that infection control practices are being used. It means that those, those uh, institutions are able to uh, stop that spread uh, really well. And so I think there's a, the good news is there's a lot of care facilities that are COVID free, a lot of care facilities that are handling outbreaks well. We do know the areas where, you know, it got away from them, and and those are tragic, and they've led to deaths, and it's important to recognize that this is a deadly virus. But I think in Hamilton, a number of things have, have kept us in, in good stead, and we're starting to see this period of time now where we can start to turn our attention to how will we uh, start to exit out of that and and the, you know some other good news from a, a province's perspective and our country's perspective is that we can look around the world to areas that were a little bit out in front of us in terms of their spike and their surge and start to understand better how they're starting to get out of this as well and uh, I can tell you from our conversation this morning at the EOC this is where we will start to turn our attention in the coming days we expect we'll We'll start to have those first conversations at some point this week and, and over the next couple of weeks because as we head into May, I think that's the time where people see some discussion happening about what the next steps take. I think it's important to reiterate what everyone is saying though, is the next step is not, it's all over folks. Uh, welcome back to, to life as we knew it back in January or last uh, last spring. It won't be that, but it is uh, an opportunity, I think, for all levels of government uh, to start to look at how we will get back to a little bit of normalcy. Uh,
0: And, you know, talk a little bit about the challenge within nursing homes and and long-term care care facilities, Uh, you know, especially nursing homes. I mean, these are designed to have that community feel. The whole idea is you're not alone. You're there with everybody. In the lower levels of these uh, homes, there's all kinds of uh, uh, public uh, uh, meeting spaces and, and things for them to do because that's the idea of a, of a fruitful retirement so how do you balance that with all of a sudden we got to separate everybody
5: well that is one element of it for sure congregate settings by their very nature uh, you know i think coming out of this we'll start to look at not you know getting rid of congregation and getting rid of that community field but how do we do that well uh, how do we not have people sharing rooms is, is, uh, is something, you know, I look at it from the city's perspective in terms of our residential care facilities, our emergency shelters. You know, talk about really challenging environments to control outbreak. Uh, there you have it. The other side to these, though, is and this is really important and you've seen some some changes uh, provincially to help uh, mitigate this is the number of people that come in and out of it from a staffing perspective, from a visitation perspective, from other activities that go on in these homes. They are very busy spots, not necessarily for the hundred or so residents that may call it home, but from all the people that come in and out. And one of the big learnings, of course, is the more people you have coming in and out, the more that staff, and they don't do it on purpose, we know that but staff can be carriers and and that spread can occur as well. And so there's a number of factors that make these types of environments very challenging. Uh, The one is their physical setup for sure. But that can be handled through uh, distancing, through uh, additional cleaning. Uh, But some of the big challenge is, of course, how many people are coming in and out of these facilities. And that's why I think you've seen the government take strong stands around. It needs to be a staffing cohort that only works in that facility. Uh, We need to limit the number of people coming in. And I know for families, it is so difficult not to come and see their loved one. And they say, look, it's just one or two of us that want to come in. But, again, times 100 people in a home or 200 people in a home, then you can get up to five, 600 people each day coming in as visitors. It just can't happen if we want to control this within those environments.
0: Uh, Paul Johnson with us, Director of our Emergency Operations Center for the City of Hamilton. So moving forward this week, Paul, what are the challenges? You talked about working on an exit plan uh, with the rest of the crew. What are the challenges moving through this week?
5: So moving through this week, uh, you know, for us, it's it's how do we continue to to, to keep people on the same path? I I know that as you say, as people get to flatten the curve, or maybe we even start to see a a little bit of a decline at some point, the the natural tendency is going to be. So I want to get out of this, uh, you know, kind of uh, I know it's not a full lockdown, but people use that terminology, uh, you know, that stay-at-home mentality. When do I get out of that? And I think it's really important for us to. Continue to hold the line. That we're not quite there yet. We still have increasing cases. We still have uh, things that we want to do to control this. And we really do have to look at the evidence and listen to our health professionals about how best to to exit out of this. So I, you know, the challenge of this is the deeper we get into spring, the nicer the weather is going to get, the more people are going to want to do things that are normally uh, more social in nature uh, than perhaps our winter hibernation. And those are the challenges a little bit operationally for us. And we are still dealing with uh, higher than normal uh, volumes of of staff who are uh, off for a variety of reasons, so we're we're working through those things. But I really do think that going through these weeks, we've hit a bit of stability, Scott. It's 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 not so bad from that operational perspective. Uh, we're out enforcing, we're out doing the things we want to do, trying to keep the city going. I do think it is putting some some serious minds around the table to start to look at some proposals for for what coming out of this looks like and what restarting some services looks like. Because our expectation is the province will start to to talk in those ways as well in terms of their provincial orders so it's two two fronts we have to keep people doing the things they've been doing in hamilton it is working and and this is the this is the message i want to put out there is what we're doing is having some effect there may be other factors to it but i can tell you it's the things we're doing that are having that effect and then of course we need to start to talk about how do we do get out of this in a in a solid way that doesn't allow us uh, to go back into a surge that would overwhelm systems again
0: that is great news. Paul Johnson's been with us, the director of our emergency operations center, city of Hamilton. Uh, it looks like things are looking better, but as Paul reinforces, that this is no time to let up. Paul, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you. All right. Uh, another spinoff of all of this, there's a relatively new division of paramedics in Hamilton that deals specifically when they get a call. Uh, That could be a COVID-19 case. Let's bring in David Thompson, Advanced Care Paramedic, Superintendent Program and Strategies Partnership with Paramedic Services and on the line with us now. David, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Thanks for having me. So what can you tell us about this unit? Uh, And this is specifically geared to deal with patients who may uh, have been in contact with COVID-19.
6: Yes, yeah, so we trained 12 paramedics to uh, be infectious disease paramedics. Uh, they did some extra training, and they're utilizing some um, different equipment than some of the other people on the front line. Uh, but we brought them in to kind of deal, like you said, with the COVID-19 patients that we're responding to and potential um, for interfacility transfers with some of those patients that we know are sick or know have COVID-19.
0: What sort of training goes into this? Uh, what's different from a standard paramedic?
6: So, again, they're using some different uh, equipment. So we go through donning and doffing or putting on and taking off of um, protective equipment. We know that taking off protective equipment and coming from out of a bowl, taking off that equipment can be some of the most dangerous time or where there's the most potential for exposure. So just going through how to keep um, each other safe, working as a team and working with their partner to go through proper application and taking off of that PPE and then we kind of dug down into the what we know about COVID-19 how it goes from person to person and and got right down to even to the cellular level with some of the stuff that we know and the evidence is showing us
0: and what about equipment wise
6: so they're utilizing utilizing sorry um powered air purifying respirators so it's basically a, a power blower or filter on their back that uses ambient air and um filters it, and provides it into a, a helmet that they're wearing through a breathing hose. So it's, it's a little um, better for them, and there's air circulation. Um, it keeps them cool while they're, they're uh, performing their activities daily.
0: And I'm guessing these, the, well, I'll ask you, when, what's, what would be the situation, the criteria to send out this unit?
6: So if they're, if they're out in the city and we do get a, a positive screen from our dispatch, then this unit, if they're uh, closest and most appropriate, will be responding to that call. Uh, we'll also utilize them with some of those um, really sick patients that we get in the field that might require advanced airway management, might require intubation, uh, or some more um, high-risk procedures that they can perform uh, with the safety of that enhanced PPE, and then Dispatched to calls for interfacility transfers should a patient need to go from one hospital to the other um, for testing or for a, a bed allocation?
0: And what about the vehicle itself, David, any difference there? Uh, the vehicle
6: is the same standard ambulance. Uh, they're carrying their, um, enhanced protective equipment and they've gone through the, the truck and kind of set it up how it works best for them. Uh, in our training, we went through utilization of even our air vents and how we can use the air vents in the ambulance to pre- protect our paramedics and, uh, and move that uh, potential virus out of the truck. So they've set it up the way they like it and the way it's going to work best for them. Um, uh, I know they're excited and they're, uh, I'm excited to be out there helping their uh, fellow co-workers in the community.
0: And I understand that people volunteered for this. Uh, how did you select? How did you decide who gets to do it? How many are there?
6: Uh, so we put out a posting, and uh, everybody had the opportunity, and then the 12 um, people that we trained were, uh, were called and selected, and we kind of went through things with that. But, again, there's 12 of them, so that allows us to uh, have uh, two paramedics on one ambulance uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and also um, that provides us with a little bit of backup coverage. Somebody, should somebody be off sick uh, or not be able to come into work, we have that, uh, that fallback with training.
0: Now, uh, what sort of advance warning would paramedics have that the patient could be exposed to COVID-19? How important is it when people are, uh, if they're calling for assistance, to reveal this sort of thing? Uh, how do you know what you're walking into?
6: Uh, so like you mentioned, that, that initial contact with 911 is very important. So the dispatcher will ask those questions and go through a screening process with the caller. And uh, you're always going to get an ambulance when you call, so answering honestly and appropriately to those questions with the dispatcher is paramount for our paramedics to be prepared when, when they walk through the door wearing appropriate PPE. And then once the paramedics do arrive, they'll go through another screening process um, when they make patient contact and um, assess the patient from their point of view, and then sometimes that positive um, that comes from the dispatch turns out to be a negative, and then sometimes it's confirmed. Um, But all our paramedics are trained in appropriate protective equipment and how to don it and doff it, and uh, make those um, on-scene and upfront assessments.
0: What does it look like when they're wearing all of this?
6: Uh, So some of them kind of described it as a space odyssey, but it's a, it's a, there's different equipment out there. We went with a helmet because it provides a little bit more comfort for the paramedics that are doing it. And it has a face shield as opposed to a, um, a PAPR hood, which has a little bit of a limited um, vision uh, field. So this way they're able to perform those procedures and they have a good field of vision and they can feel confident in the procedures that they're doing, especially when it comes to airway management and starting uh, intravenuses and those things that require a little bit more, uh, more finesse out there.
0: Uh, uh, obviously, there's a lot of health concerns on any given day, as well as those that are COVID-19 uh, related. How has this changed the life of the average paramedic uh, w- with being in the environment that we're living in right now?
6: I, I know that there's there's anxiety and there's stress out there. I can't stress uh, enough the great work that they're doing and the frontline uh, coming into work, and they've taken on this challenge with the uh, most professionalism, and uh, I know um, going home, it's it's changed things a little bit. There's some people that unfortunately have had to uh, distance themselves from family, change the routine when they get home, um, you know, taking those clothes off at work or uniform off at work or leaving it in their garage and, and getting right in the shower to decontaminate themselves. Um, but like I said, it's, uh, it's amazing to see the work that they're doing, and they haven't missed a beat when it comes to a uh, Working out there in the community.
0: Volume of calls relatively the same, David. I mean, you know, some have said that there, you know, there's been concern that people are avoiding going into to get help because they don't want to catch something or they think the systems are overrun. What's what what's the volume like been like through this uh, period?
6: It's varied. We have, uh, like you mentioned, there there has been um, that that little bit of a dip because people are concerned to go to the hospital. Uh, but in speaking with some of the crews this morning, just when I was doing some the debrief with the IDP team, they said the call volume is still there. Um, with the COVID stuff, we're averaging about 30 positive COVID patients in a 24-hour period that we're transferring to hospital. hospital. Um, but like you said, that the COVID is out there, but it, the, the other people are, still need us, the people that are having heart attacks or or our yeah. car accidents, falls, things like that. So the call volume is still there. It's just uh, we're picked up a little bit with the COVID-type response. Uh,
0: David Thompson has been with us, Superintendent Program Development and Strategic Partnership Paramedic Services, a relatively new division of the paramedics for Hamilton that deals specifically with Uh, COVID-19 and other infectious diseases. David, thank you so much for the time. Please pass along to the rank and file how uh, grateful we all are for the great work that uh, you all do. And thank you so much and be safe. I will do, and thanks for having us on. Good news coming out of the Premier's press conference uh, earlier this uh, afternoon. Uh, reasons to be optimistic, but certainly no reason to uh, stop doing what we're doing. Uh, I thought the health minister said it best when she said the destination is in sight, but we have not yet arrived. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Ahmad Khalid is with us, faculty member in human and social sciences, health policy advisor, Wilfrid Laurier University, and is with us now. Ahmad, thanks so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Great to speak to you, Scott. And your thoughts on the new models released today, uh, what is it telling you?
7: I think it's all good news. I think we're hearing very positive news from the data that uh, it's exactly that. We're almost at our destination. We're just uh, on our way there, and we're getting there very, very close. Uh,
0: Are you concerned? How concerned are you that this might make people ease up a little bit? Because, again, as, as the Premier said, this is not an accident that we got there. This was due to social distancing.
7: Exactly. So that is a concern of ours. We want to make sure that we stay on course. We don't want to deviate away from the good things we've done so far. We want to make sure that our public health interventions are currently in place and they continue in place so we finally reach that destination we've all been wanting and asking for for a while.
0: Uh, Are you concerned this might be a false peak? Um, You know, a lot of people uh, ask if we peaked yet, but how do you know until you get through the the next week where where the numbers are going down? Uh, Are you concerned there might be another blip?
7: Today, the information from the ministry is that we've already have arrived at our peak from the community transmission. So I do believe we are fastening the curve, but that might change over time. So I think it's going to be key that we don't uh, relax on our public health interventions so we don't see a second peak. I think everybody's trying to make sure that that doesn't happen.
0: Uh, what will coming out of this look like? As we, you know, if we're if we're at the peak now, we're crossing. I, I always uh, use the analogy of it's like being on a long roller coaster train, and we've just got to the top of the hill, and we're just cresting, you know, the, the top of the hill on the way down. Um, what's it going to be like on the way down? I mean, my kids are constantly asking me, and we all know that that you just can't swing open the doors. How do you see this moving out gradually?
7: Yeah, so I think what we're going to see is that many of the measures that are already in place by uh, Stores. I mean, now, if you go to uh, LCBO or Loblaws, you'll see that there's already plexiglass, workers wearing protective uh, equipment. I think that will continue to be in place. I think that the infrastructure put in place will not go away. Uh, I think, if anything, we'll see more of those measures in the future, because, as I said repeatedly before, crises are on the rise.
0: Do you think we'll see, and again, we, you and I are just guessing at this point, but with us being where we are and, and peaking right now or being or, or crossing this curve or crossing the top of this curve, um, do you think we'll see kids in school or is it best, from your recommendation, what you see to keep them out?
7: Yeah, I do think we're we'll going to see kids back in school. I think we are social human beings. I think it's very difficult to imagine a life where we're not interacting in the public, we're not going to school, uh, our kids are not playing outside in the park. I think that will happen again. It just might take a bit of time for assistance to adapt to allow for that. So I think we are, uh, May 12 being the extension of the declaration of emergency, I think that, that gives us hope that there, we might actually end up having a summer as we knew before.
0: Uh, I think we've talked about this before, Doctor, but I'll I'll use this for my last question here. uh, Just to reiterate, many have talked that, you know, uh, with the traditional influenza, of which this is not, um, you know, by the time the warmer weather weather arrives, that these things tend to die out. We don't don't know anything about temperature-specific or temperatures, whether
7: they matter in this, do we? We actually do know. So the evidence has shown us that COVID-19 does not seem to be dependent or discriminate against weather conditions. And the reason why we say that is we see we saw high rates of the COVID-19 in northern parts of China, uh, where it's very cold temperatures. And we've seen it in hotter temperatures like Singapore uh, and and parts of Africa. So that tells us that weather won't really play much of a factor on this one.
0: All right, Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, faculty member, human and social sciences health policy advisor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much
7: appreciated. Stay well. YouTube. Great speaking
0: to you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML. Parliament is expected to resume today. And there's been all sorts of bickering back and forth about how they're going to do it. How many live sessions, how many uh, uh, sittings, uh, virtual sittings are going to do. Uh, my goodness, we're doing a radio show. People are working from home all over the world. Why these people can't get their act together and uh, and and have some sort of virtual thing is beyond me. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman Summa, Stra- uh, Summa Strategies, Abacus Data as well. He's with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. Much appreciated.
8: Well, Scott, happy anniversary. Why don't you give your wife uh, the gift of like a two-hour walk today? You you having a long time. <laughs> I gave her that yesterday. What about that?
0: I gave her that yesterday.
8: Well, Maybe she deserves it two days in a row. <laughs> That's it.
0: I believe it. I, I think you're absolutely right. A good walk with a dog is something we should do. <laughs> Uh, Tim, What are your thoughts on on what's the reasoning here? Because, um, you know, one side is playing this that, you know, we just want accountability. The other side is playing this. Well, no, it's way too unsafe to do any of this. I don't think anybody's asking everybody to come back and have a hug and a kiss as if it was normal. But since we're all working virtually, why can't these people?
8: It, it, excellent question. So, look, I think part of this is driven by the fact that the opposition, particularly the conservatives, find it really frustrating at a political level that every day the prime minister has these 11:15 uh, news conferences and has unfettered access to speak to the Canadian public and uh, you know, journalists uh... who are no slouches, mind you, ask him questions and the like. But it's it's not the same cut and thrust from their perspective as as the house of commons and they want to have that opportunity to hold him to account now the liberals are saying yeah we we want that we want that but if public health officers are telling us we should only go to a grocery store once a week why should we go to parliament four times during the week which is what the conservatives wanted i think Scott, a lot has changed since the tragedy in nova scotia yesterday meaning I think that conservatives are realizing now that, okay, look, between COVID-19 and the, this horrible mass murder in, in, uh, in Nova Scotia, it really looks kind of foolish not to find a way to agree now to maybe one sitting a week and some of these virtual sittings. So I think that's the path we're on at the moment.
0: What is the argument about? How many sittings we're supposed to have a week, or is it about whether they are in person or not? Because again, well, the, it seems one side's talking about health and saying we can't meet, and it's like, well, we don't need to meet to be doing this. Do they have to be in person to do this? Why aren't they doing no, they it every? Don't, and have why aren't they doing that are
8: virtual it virtual right now? Right. So the finance committee, uh, which was. Uh, a standing committee of the House. I think there are five uh, committees now um, that are House of Commons committees, so subgroups of MPs of all parties who look at different issues who are all meeting virtually. Um, you know, Sheer would argue that Parliament is an essential service, so they shouldn't meet in Parliament. But, it, you know, I think a lot of it is more about trying to capture more of the optics, and that's a dangerous thing to do. I guess that's my a- point
0: is why are they not meeting every day virtually? Uh, well, like we're, like we're splitting hairs here because you know, you got what the prime minister saying, oh, it's not healthy, and then you got the Andrew Shear saying, well, you know, we got to be accountable. Well, those are two well, totally different issues. Why can't well, we meet in think the they middle? figured
8: out the technology, the best technology to do all of that yet. That's the third argument in all of this. So it looks like we're going to have my goodness, money. even
0: the kids have here, even the kids have figured it out. Why the hell can't parliament figure it out? They're the last ones to do it, Tim. I'm not buying this.
8: Well, Scott some might argue the kids are ahead of most members of parliament in their ability to do things but so that would be cruel and unkind of me to make that joke as well mm. uh- Look, uh, yeah, the, 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 well, there's some examples of it, but w- what what has been the experience so far, right? I mean, I can just tell you what's happened in some of these committees. The Finance Committee, which is the key committee, right, the one that Morneau appears at now every two weeks. He had some early uh, adoption issue, technology, adoption issues, and, you know, the same thing we all have at home. Sometimes the Internet crashes, it doesn't work as well as it would, um so it's a weak argument uh, but it's an argument that that's uh that that, that's being made Uh, i think all of these parties now want to just find a way to make it work because again given what happened in nova scotia given COVID 19 uh, they all are going to start to look kind of silly if they can't put this behind them and find a suitable form in the short term that allows for some form of debate and discussion
0: you know, Tim, whether it's supplies, masks, gowns, whatever, whether it's trying to get together, this just to me proves how the government is not nimble. It's easier to turn the Titanic than it is government. I mean, and I think that's the point that that Ford was trying to make when he was... He couldn't understand why more testing wasn't done despite having all of the yeah. supplies. And, and, and I think this is what people are seeing. And, and, and this, while we're all working from home, while we're all doing our job and everything else, these people are seen as not doing that. So, again, here they are fight, fight, you know, fighting over whether it's safe to go out or not. That's not the issue here. Get yourself a laptop, get yourself a computer, and get to work every single day like the rest of us are. Is that too much to ask?
8: No. no, it's not too much to ask, and I think, you know, that's sort of seeping in a little bit, and look, to be fair, there are a lot of these people who are working hard, right? They are working hard, uh, and, you know, you, you get to a bigger question about, you know, how valuable is the scrutiny and the debate that happens in Parliament, if it's just going to be a form of, you know, that old masterpiece theater, is it even worth bringing back in that section, because we need a maturity and a temperament, but, that That befits the day and, and and we certainly need proper scrutiny, absolutely, we need proper scrutiny. Uh, we talked about that last week. I mean the government can be nimble on some things you know I, I, though they 're going to have to clean up their nimbleness. look at the, the the emergency response benefit. I think the prime minister said what on Friday seven million people had applied and all of those mm. seven million are likely going to get it on the front end so they can get cash out the door when they want, when they need to, uh, as they should in circumstances like this, but where they can't get away from the bickering. And I think that's the issue, Scott, is when it comes to, well, what stage are we going to use to poke out our chests and preen up our tails and and show Canadians that we're on duty for them? And then the, Yeah, but you can't,
0: you- you can't do any of that if nobody's sitting i mean the only one that's preening and pruning right now is is the prime minister
8: and that's what's irritating the uh, the the conservatives all the hell uh and the ndp and the and the bloc aren't seemingly as frustrated with that um so, you know, I like I said, I think they're going to get an agreement um, and then Canadians can decide if they like it or they don't like it and if anything's actually getting done. I Look, I, I think they need to be guided by sensibility. I think there is some value in having one in-person setting a week, if nothing other than to demonstrate a continuity, right? Because symbolism matters. Mm -hmm. And they've been able to come in on a couple of occasions to pass emergency measures. And that also doesn't mean all 338 MPs come in. I think they all agree on that part. Come in once a week, at least in person. Make it safe. Make it people around here. Do all your planning. Then do a few other sessions Virtually, you can find a way to do that as these committees are doing. Create a rhythm because all of this becomes about establishing a new normal and a sense and the legitimacy around how
0: accountability
8: is being meted
0: out. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated, and be well.
8: And your wife texted me and said, yeah, make sure he goes for that walk again, okay? So go
0: for that (laughs) walk, all right? (laughs) Goodbye. Thank you, Tim. Much appreciated. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.